Hi, I'm Pam Mundy and welcome to the Family of Virtues podcast. You are listening to the Family of Virtues podcast. Virtues are the essence of who we are. They are described in the world's sacred traditions as the qualities of the divine and the attributes of the human spirit. They are the content of our character and the basis of genuine happiness. Here, we aim to share inspirational thoughts and discussions related to the role of a parent as an educator and guide, so we can support children to grow through the many challenges of life and to help them turn these challenges into moral victories. Through conversations with parents and teachers, we will learn from their lessons and share how we, as parents, can plant and nurture the seed that will make a lasting impact towards our child's purpose. Thank you everyone for joining us today on the Family of Virtues podcast. I honor all of us for our commitment to learn more about ourselves and how we can create positive and loving environments for our children. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Family of Virtues. Children are like sponges and are very impressionable. Everything we do and say, even if it is not obvious to us, they notice it, they hear it, they feel it. And we are all teachers, even parents are teaching, and they learn whatever we model, whether we realize it or not, how we react to situations, our positivity, our anxiety, our insecurities, they tend to pick these signals up. So if we get into a habit of complaining about them, we are showing them how to condemn others, or perhaps even worse, condemn themselves. We are teaching to see what is wrong with the world rather than what is right. And it gives me great pleasure today for our topic, avoiding criticism and purposeful parenting to invite our next guest on the channel. I have known Pam Mundy for years now. Having attended her professional development sessions on several occasions, Pam has this energy about her that is so positive and purposeful, and she has always left me inspired to keep moving ahead no matter what the challenges are. Pam, I have to thank you. I'm blessed that we've crossed paths and that through this podcast, we get to speak again. Welcome, Pam. Thank you very much, Richard. And it, it's the word years that bothers me and it just makes me realize how old I am now. Thank you for the, those very kind words. I, I have to say that the feeling is entirely mutual. I've learned an awful lot from you over the years and the connection remains as it always does with good people. I think you know quite a, quite a lot about me already, but just for the purpose of, of the people who've kindly given their time to join us today. My background is as a teacher, and that's something I've never left behind. Whatever I've done in my life, I'm still a teacher. And I've been through the usual process of becoming a principal, director of education, and working latterly at Ministry of Education level across the world. And one thing that it's taught me, Richard, is that children, wherever they are, are very much the same, and parents have the same anxieties. And I learn every day more about what it means to be a child in this particular world, but also mm. the trials and tribulations and the joys of actually being a parent. And that's such a precious gift. And it comes with such an awful lot of responsibility and not knowing 
perhaps what you should do that's right. So hopefully today between us, we can discuss that and put some ideas into people's heads that perhaps might not have been there before, and also to reassure them through the Virtues program. Excellent, Pam. I'm so, so excited. Uh, I will take a moment now, as I always do in these episodes, uh, to read a Virtues Reflections card. And our Virtue of the Week is Purposefulness. And just a reminder that these cards are available from the Virtues Project website and also electronically available through the Virtues Matter app as well. Purposefulness is being aware that each of us is here for a reason. We value our lives by discovering the part we are uniquely meant to play. We discern our intention and focus on it mindfully. We visualize it happening. We set goals and achieve them step by step, resisting distractions. We give each task single-minded concentration and excellence. We invest our full enthusiasm into even the simplest job. In the flow of our lives, there are many turns and unexpected events. Within it all, there are lessons to be learned and gifts to receive. Purposefulness is trusting the journey and how important is that last sentence, Pam, uh, oh. in the current pandemic situation? Well, I think that in the current situation, it's it's the most difficult job of all. And I've always thought um, that there's there's no job description for being a parent, and there certainly isn't a job description for being a parent during the pandemic. And I spent a long time talking to parents across the world during this this terrible period in our lives. But I think there's a lot of learning to come from it. Parents have been under an awful lot of pressure to be the perfect parent. But as I said, there is no job description. If there was, it would say something like long term team players needed, challenging permanent work in a chaotic environment. Candidates need to possess excellent communication and organizational skills be willing to work variable hours to include evenings and weekends and frequent 24-hour shifts on call. What that job description didn't include was, and also to be a teacher. Mm. I think for the first time, parents have seen how, not well, perhaps not difficult, but how challenging it is to be both parent and teacher and to switch between those roles. So which of those is your purpose? Is your purpose to be a parent? Is your purpose to be a teacher? Or is your purpose to combine both of those things together? And I think they are entirely possible, but I do think it's been a huge challenge for parents and continues to be so. But I think one of the things I would say to parents is, relax is a very easy word to say, but it's whatever you are doing, somewhere in that you will be doing instinctively, because that is the purpose that you were born with. That is the purpose of being a parent, of sharing your skills with your child, but also noticing. And I think one of the the key things about being a parent, and we forget it, I know, is to be a noticer. Notice what your child's purpose seems to be at the moment. Does it match yours? Are you driving that child in a different way? But in all of this difficult scenario, to know and understand that somewhere intrinsically, The purpose that was given to you as a parent when you were born is the one that is connecting you to your child and will Mm. enable you, if you listen, and I mean listen in the broadest sense of the word, to actually what's going on in front of you with your children. There was something in the previous episode saying children uh, children didn't choose us. We didn't choose our children. I think we chose each other. 
And I think that's really powerful as well to understand that there is some kind of um, divine order or whatever it is that people want to believe in that has connected these two humans together of child and parent. Completely agree with you, Richard. And I think the other thing that perhaps uh, amuses me, and when you actually share it with parents, they can see it themselves, is they're surprised that actually this little human being whom they have created and who has, as you quite rightly said, chosen them and they have chosen this child, suddenly turns out to have a personality of their own. Um, That's right. That's not in the purposeful plan. That's not in the, it's going to be like this. And someone Mm. described to me a few months ago, being a parent was a little bit like planning the perfect holiday and then Mm. arriving and realizing that they'd actually built the hotel in a different place and it didn't quite look the way you wanted it to be. And I think that's one of the most important things about being a parent is also to let your child be who they are because they too have brought a purpose to this world. I completely agree. I think we need to understand that our children are human beings and they are not going to be a carbon copy of us. They have their own lives, their own journeys and their own personalities. And we need to sort of step back and see what is our role in ensuring that we provide them with the moral and ethical compass, with the conscience that they require to then be able to pursue whatever it is that they can So we're diving in now to speak about the different ways in which parents are sometimes, I guess, critical uh, with their words or their tone of voice or their mannerisms. And it doesn't mean that they intend it. I think all parents always have the best interest at heart. But because of our frustrations, and I can completely understand that there are frustrations, there are stresses, we all know that we can sometimes give that look. You know that phrase, if looks could kill. We all know that we can give a condemning look or we add a critical edge to our words. Be snarky. You know, young children are very sensitive to the way things are said and take them to heart. Even the simple phrase like, it's time to go, can be, it's time to go, honey. Time to go, buddy. You know, I'm going to give you two minutes and I'll count down from five to one and then you will know when it's time to go. Or how many times have I told you it's time to go? Can send a very different message to children. And of course, all of us have these stresses and we all criticize every now and then. But the longer this pandemic is going on, the passive and ongoing criticism with the more focus on finding fault rather than acknowledgement can have a lasting effect on kids, Pam. Absolutely. And it's interesting, as you were talking, Richard, I was thinking about the ones that my absolute go-to books um, and I, I can't recommend this one highly enough. It's a, it's a book called The Gardener and the Carpenter. And it's by yes, Alison Gutnick. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if nothing else, to read that book is a huge sigh of relief that says, it's okay. But even again, this book doesn't say, and this is how to behave in a pandemic. And your points about the way in which children pick things up, hear things, respond to that broken record of please pick that up, pick that up now, pick that up, pick that up. Children respond, but they also stop hearing anymore the message that parents are giving. And I've always held on to this, that parents are the children's first and most enduring educators. Whatever we do afterwards as teachers or schools, we are building on from what parents have done. 
And during this particular period, there is, and I won't wrap this up at all, there is evidence already, research evidence, that children are suffering from some mental health issues, partly from being in that isolation away from friends, but also having a very different relationship with their parents. They are actually seeing everything that parents do and are throughout the day. Now, that doesn't mean that parents are doing bad things. It just means that parents need to be aware of it. So perhaps if your child isn't isn't behaving in the way or responding in the way that they normally would to you, look at everything that's going on around you. And it's really interesting. So I spend a lot of my time listening to what children say and, as I said earlier, noticing what children do. And of course, mm. when young children first go to school, and you know this this terrifies parents, and it makes it makes me laugh. I'm absolutely honest. Once those very young children start role playing, then they role play mm. everything that goes on at home. So you can hear, you know how people cook in the evening and what they do because the children model it. What they do is they model through things that they don't understand, so they work it out. And so, can can you imagine, uh, Pam, how much material these kids are going to have when they go back to school? <laughs> Literally, someone said to me a while ago, "I'm never ever going to be able to write a book about my life because I had a really good childhood." Um, <laughs> but, um, but given given all of that, yes, I mean, everything we say and everything we do, children respond to and they pick up. Um, and people think that children don't listen. You only have to be on a phone call or having conversation with someone, think the child is absorbed in a book or a toy, to mm. watch half an hour later or in the days before the pandemic when someone visits for the child to actually repeat what you just said, which is the thing you don't want. Absolutely. But it shows, it's an indicator of just how much children absorb. And I do think even tiny, tiny children, children of, of 18 months, two years old, they still pick up the signals and particularly facial signals. You know, so whatever you do with your face with a child is the number one mm. communication if you, if you are, if they're looking at you. Because all of us mm. as humans have the condition known as pallidolia, which means that we see faces, we recognize faces mm. before anything else. And we also recognize faces in trees, in that if you're driving behind a car, some big sports cars often look very aggressive. That's yeah. designed to recognize faces. So it is everything you say and everything you do becomes part of that child's repertoire. And actually, we confuse children quite a lot, too. One of the things my my own mum used to say to me was, if I was running too fast or climbing, don't come running to me if you break your leg. And it was only a year later mm. that I realised that would have been impossible anyway. But that, that stayed mm. in my head, don't come running to me if you break your leg. And it, it does play back. But I think we need to be particularly careful at this point as parents to just take a few seconds before you say something to a child because it becomes yeah. part of their inner recording. And that's just one of the things yeah. that frustrates parents and the body language too. You know, I, I've heard parents say things like, come on, it's time that we were going and their hands are clasped in front of them. You could see their tense and the child picks that up on a, I'm going to use the word, on an energetic level. We are, we're all creatures. We're all part of the same whole. And we pick things up on an energetic level. And children who live with constant criticism become quite withdrawn. They become the children who are fearful. I and mean, you and I both as educators, Richard, we've worked with children who are terrified to do some, try something new in case they get it mm. wrong. Yeah, no, Pam, I even remember a story once where... Uh... A parent basically didn't even read uh, an email from school 
and uh, wasn't aware that there was a competition going on and uh, their child was participating in that competition and ended up winning. And as it so happens, these competitions take place during the last, you know, one or two periods. And when the parent came to pick up the child, uh, the parent was actually very surprised because the parent came at the tail end of the competition and saw the child picking up the trophy. <sighs> and then when the two of them came, you know, before us and the parent asked, why didn't you tell me? Uh, the child simply said, I was too scared that I wouldn't win. Wow. That's powerful. And and that's exactly the, the kind of thing that I'm saying. And I think, you know, particularly during this period, and, and all of these rules apply to parenting, pandemic or no pandemic, and let's hope that very soon it's no pandemic. But we, I think we become unaware of how much our own stress is on making us criticise other people. And I, I've said this again to lots of parents during this period. This is a unique period in history, and I choose to see it in a slightly different way that these children are in many respects, depending on their family, of course, very fortunate to have this precious time with their parents, to have a time that no child before them and children who are born later will have in this century. And I certainly wouldn't want it mm. to be for this reason. So they are very, they're rich children in many respects. But there's a phrase, and I can never remember who said this, but um, it's something like a rich child often sits on a poor parent's lap. And that's nothing to do with mm. finance. A rich child is a child who has those interactions with the parents, who knows the difference between now mummy is telling me off because this wasn't the right thing to do. And why is my mummy always saying that same thing or my daddy saying the same thing to me? What is it I'm doing wrong? Because often we forget to interpret what we are criticizing for the child. You know, right. it's the same thing. And instead of looking at what we are expecting, uh, instead of focusing on the expected behavior, we're always talking to them about what they aren't doing right. That's right. And the same thing happens with praise. So, you know, I, mm. I've worked with teachers for many years and I always say the same thing. If you are praising a child, Tell them what you're praising them for. It's no good to say, good boy, good girl, well done. Well done for yep. what? Need the evidence. That's right. Mm. So that that behavior can be repeated. And it's the same if you're going to tell the child that perhaps what they just did wasn't quite right. Why wasn't it right? What impact did yeah. it have? And that changes the whole focus, I think. Yeah. I like what you said earlier about, you know, we need to be, uh, we need to respond to situations and be very peaceful and, and probably even just take a few seconds before we are trying to speak to our children, you know, if, if we are upset about something. So when things are unexpected, we need to be able to treat each other with that, you know, with, with that level of peacefulness, with that tolerance and with that understanding and, and, and listen, uh, as you were saying, just listen to what it is that they're saying. Absolutely. I mean, I, again, I think as Margaret Macmillan once said, there's, there's only one place to start and that's where the child is. Um, and, and that's the best that we can do. And parents, listening is a really interesting word and I use it often. And what I mean is listening to hear and looking in order mm. to see what's actually going on with a child. And we are in such, and, you, and you've expressed it beautifully, Richard, we are in such a hurry up society. We've got to go here. We've got to do this. There is never a moment for many children when there is 
peace. And part of that, mm. um, and I, I hope you won't mind me saying this, is a competitiveness between parents, which is, you know, mm. if I can get my child to this club and that club and that club, and they need to do this. And I didn't have these chances as a child. Therefore, my child is going to have them. Hold on. What if your child doesn't want to go to ballet? What if they don't want to go to this particular club? Who are mm. they? And it takes me right back to what I said at the very beginning. You know, they don't come with an instruction manual. They do in terms of mm. how to feed them, how to change them. They don't come with an instruction manual of how to be. And I think where this, this drops particularly is when children get older. So that point mm. of teenage, the teenage moment when children turn from the regulation of the adult toward the regulation of their peers, that's when this tension becomes even greater. And I've said for many years, if you look at a 12-year-old, you're looking at a two-year-old that's just a bit bigger. Mm. And so the responses mm. are the same. So again, it's about, okay, hang on. How has this changed? What should I do? And I've just had the same situation with my own daughter-in-law and my eldest granddaughter. You know, they're, they're almost daggers drawn, as we'd say in England. And it's because one mm. hasn't recognized the stresses of the other. Um, and you know, mm. things happen and the control is gone. I think what we need to do as parents is think less about control and less about and more about careful consideration from both sides. Mm. And that mm. just just slowing it down very slightly and really seeing what's going on in a child's mind. And it's very easy to see what children are thinking, if only you would look. And one of the things I find really interesting, and I'm sure you've seen it before, Richard, is the the Harvard Center um, for the Developing Child, which is a wonderful website. And it is free if, if parents want to have a look at it. There is a fabulous um, piece of footage, and it, it's almost quite horrific when you see it. It's called the Silent Face Experiment, and basically, it's it's a it's a mother with a, with a very young child, and the the scientists have asked her to play normally, interact normally with her tiny child who's sitting in a high chair, and then suddenly to just stop and not respond at all, just to keep her face very still but facing the child. And it's mm -hmm. quite distressing to watch. It's absolutely fine. And, and the parent, actually, there is a point at which the parents says, I can't do this anymore and reacts. But it's massively interesting to watch this very tiny child who cannot yet communicate verbally try to get the parent to interact with them. And it's obviously for the, for the parent very distressing. Now, if, if you have time to watch that, what it's saying is mm -hmm. because I have suddenly changed my behavior, then the child also changes their behavior. In that case, Mm. But if you think about just one tiny change to your behavior to a child, physically, facially, mm. and verbally in terms of the tone of your voice or what you, what you, well, the words that you use, that makes a huge difference. And I don't think that mm. sort of answered your question or responded, but it seemed to take me in that direction when I thought about what you were saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, we, we speak so much about how everything is so fast. And yet at the same time, we now have a golden opportunity. We now have a golden opportunity to slow things down. So much to your recommendations earlier. How can parents purposefully parent our children? How can we purposefully listen to them? How can we purposefully spend quality time with them? 
why don't we dig into some practical ideas, Pam? Because I know you've got, uh, you know, a real uh, passion for early childhood education as well. And that's where I feel a lot of parents struggle, you know, when their kids are two years old and three years old, where they aren't able to sort of communicate in words. So let's start down there. How can we actually spend quality time with our children? Right. And that's a, that's a lovely question, Richard. And you made me think of, of one word as you were speaking, which is patience. Um, and, you know, again, mm. in England, we have, a, we have a saying that is patience is a virtue, and it certainly is. Um, yep. And the other side is that for most parents is, you know, give me patience now. And, you know, that, that's, that's the <laughs> it. And it is hard to be very, very patient. Anyone who's ever walked with a very small child to school or nursery will know that that journey takes twice as long as it would do if you're walking alone, because the child wants to stop and speak to every leaf, have a look at the crack in the pavement, see the tiny bug walking along. And that is where parents can learn so much from a child. So if you're asking me about practical solutions, I know this is a busy world and I know parents are very, very busy. And of course, most parents during this period are working at home. If there are two of you, mm-hmm. even if you have to, and I don't like to say this, but even if you have to just plan a couple of times in the day when you will put everything else away, particularly, and we are all guilty, the technology, because the technology is a wonderful, wonderful tool, but it's also a destroyer of childhood if you're not careful. We have to embrace it. So if you put that time aside and just say, right, I am going to play with my children now. What happens here is, what shall we play? Uh-uh. Yeah. Children can find so many things in the home to play with. And obviously, you've got to be very careful. You don't want children to be injured. But we are too often right. buying whatever it is to give to the child to play with. And it's usually something that you know makes lots of noise or it's usually something that, that looks interesting. Children, If children can find the joy in, in a crack in a pavement and a leaf – you know, just walking, if you have a garden or you can walk down the road with them, just that and listen to what the children say, have a conversation. And I, and I know what mm. happens when people, parents do do this. First of all, the questions are very self-conscious to a child. I often see teachers do this. They'll say, what have you done today? Mm. Oh, that's lovely. How did that work? No, it doesn't. You don't always have to answer questions. So sit with them, sit in a garden, find a lovely flower that you can look at, you know, sit with a storybook. Even if you just look at the pictures, it doesn't matter. 10 minutes of that kind of time is worth 45 minutes in an after school club or doing something. You don't always have to be doing. I, I, I like to think of myself as a human doing sometimes, but most of the time, a human being. Absolutely. No, it's such a, such, such, so powerful. And I think we forget that we are actually being, uh, constantly being something. And when, when you're talking about 10 minutes of that being more powerful than 45 minutes in an extracurricular activity after school, I really resonate with that because these kids in this day and age live in a very instant environment. And if we don't teach them how to pause and reflect, then where are they going to learn their patience from? You know, when I was growing up, um, oh, you know, we used to wait for a show once a week on TV, Pam. You know, that's it. It comes on Sunday morning at 8.30 and we waited an entire week. And you know what? Those commercial breaks as well. We had to wait for those. But right now, I know my son, a whole season's over 
and this is a six year old coming and asking me when are re- when are they releasing the next season i'm like i don't <laughs> you know and i have to i have to at this moment in time really acknowledge my wife um because she is quite against tech she she doesn't like it when there's you know the phone next to me when when we're sleeping for example she likes to put those things away she likes to create areas where she does not have technology she leaves her phone downstairs when we go upstairs and stuff like that and you know i i find that the way she's actually uh you know dealt with my son really amazing because he's really into nature he goes out and spends an hour if you like just looking at insects now she doesn't like insects but she just has to watch him you know catch a, a lizard or, or or a chameleon sometimes he holds a frog and he just wants to look at it and and at that time you know before that we were trying to say why don't you play with this puzzle or this kit from learning resources or god knows what but the more and more he went outside and the more he was in tune with nature he really felt like as if he cared for these animals and he cared for for the earth and that kind of honoring of 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 spirit if you like or that that we are actually part of one ecosystem it's not something that a lot of us have especially city folk exactly and and you know this but the city affords such a lot of nature and there's a huge amount of research that shows what an impact the outdoors has on a child even in the city um and mm-hmm. you know it, it isn't people say that having children is very expensive in some respects it is but actually we make it expensive we use yeah. the things that we think children ought to have and children are born with terminal curiosity that that's the that's a complimentary term they're curious mm-hmm. about everything and i love it it's the same way if you want the example of it it's when a parent takes a child to visit someone and teenagers are pretty they they learn the guile a little bit more quickly but for for younger children they will say to to someone what's that spot on your face and the parent has the horrors of don't <laughs> that's not a child being rude they really want to know no. what is that spot on your face now as adults we think oh my goodness me you shouldn't have said that now a good parent will say oh that you know that's an interesting question and you know perhaps perhaps it's not polite to ask that now but let's think about it same with your your son i was just thinking when you said he said um you know when's the next series there my question then would be where do you think the next series comes from how how do mm-hmm. it? what what is that and that question yeah. opens a huge discussion so it you know it it doesn't have to be that tech is the bad thing there's a wonderful book called no. by uh, Jordan Shapiro called The New Childhood. And it really does change the way that you think about tech with children. It is their world. However, if we ignore the natural world, um, and there are many people who've said that the pandemic is the Earth's way of saying, hang on a minute, everyone. Um, mm-hmm. If it is, well, why not take this precious time, look into nature, stop buying all of the expensive toys for children and give them your time, even if it is just, you know, walking around the garden or it's looking at how a TV program was made. And with teenagers, we forget to be interested in teenagers in the same way as we're interested in young children. You know, so if they are there with their headphones and very into a game, not trying to join in and say, I can play this too, because that's the worst thing you can say to a teenager. You know, it's like, how does that work? Mm-hmm. And I have spent my whole life, and I recommend this to any parent, with six words in my head. What, why, how, where, who, when. 
And if every question you asked of a child began with that, then you've started mm-hmm. a learning discussion that isn't a criticism, that is genuinely saying, I don't know, give me, give me, some, give me some feedback here. And I think that's really important. And in t- you know, terms of practicality, you don't need a house full of stuff in order to make no. children interested. Even simple things, things like cookery. And I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have experienced Indonesian food on many occasions. And I know what skilled work that is. Even if you as a parent don't cook, if you have someone to help at home, when does that person who was helping at home with the cookery share the spices, share the way they change? Share the way that food changes when you cook it. Talk about what you're eating. That's amazing mm-hmm. learning. And it actually creates a different kind of relationship with your child that is different from what did you do at school today? And the example I give you for that is if you and Richard, I know you have a very pressured job. If you get home in the evening and you've had a little time with your son and your wife and then your wife turns around and says, OK, Richard, fine, dinner's over now. Let's go back to what you were doing all day. There's another two hours worth here. You don't want to do it. <laughs> now, if she said, why don't we sit down, have a coffee, relax, let's talk about what happened today. How's the building work going on? It's a different conversation. If we apply the same yes. rules as we apply to our relaxation time as adults to when we're with our children, that's a very mm-hmm. different and purposeful conversation. It goes back to the patience thing as well, uh, Pam, that we were speaking about earlier. I think we need to be patient. And while we were speaking, I tried to grab the card out to read it very briefly. It says, patience is quiet hope and trust that things will turn out right. You wait without complaining. You are tolerant and accepting of difficulties and mistakes. You picture the end in the beginning and persevere to meet your goals. Patience is a commitment of the future. And I invite parents that when they are asking these questions, you know, such as what you had suggested, Pam, the how, what, why's and what have you, you need to be patient because the kids are going to want to so enthusiastically tell you what's on their mind. But the moment you take your glance away, the moment we start looking at our phones, the moment we start looking at those notifications and we are disingenuous about it, they get it straight away and they just don't want to say it anymore. And it's hard to sort of get that trust back, you know, unless we're actually spending that quality time with them. Absolutely. I mean, that's critical. Um, and again, I've said this to, to lots of teachers in schools as well as to parents. You know, when a child comes to you and says, can we, or a teenager says, can we do this? Just a minute. And uh, no wonder that children struggle to be able to tell the time or, or be aware of time as, as older children, because, you know, that minute mm. can last two weeks before you suddenly remember and turn around and ask them. So I think mm. it, the, the quality, it's not quantity. Um, I had a parent ask me a couple of weeks ago, he said, I, how do I make a relationship with my, with my daughter? I'm working at home. I've got a very pressured job. And she comes and I can't talk to her because I'm on a call. I've got my headphones on. And I said, exactly as I've said to you earlier on this, in this conversation, Richard, just take them off for five minutes mm-hmm. and plan that time. Actually tell her, you know, at this time, show the clock. At this time, we will have yep. time together. And the child now looks forward to it. She knows, you know, not to disturb daddy. And that's a sad thing, but it's the way of the world. She knows mm-hmm. she is going to get her time, you know, mm-hmm. and that's important. And the same with teenagers, the older children, you know, if you're with them, even in the car, just switch the radio off, switch the music off and just talk. Even if what you get back is grunts, it doesn't matter. You're communicating. Those yeah. words will actually go in. 
Um, and that's how you build the relationship. And it's- we, had a, we had a quote earlier uh, this week that uh, as children are growing up, you know, they, they have one hand out uh, pushing a parent away saying, get away from me, while the other hand, you know, is gently behind them saying, you know, please come closer to me. And, um, and I think that's really important for parents to understand when you were talking about the grunts, especially with the older children, you know, they may behave like as if they don't want you to be around. But if you give it some time, like, don't give up that patience thing again, the moment we give up and the moment we start getting upset because of the way they're behaving with us, then we're not leaving a long enough gap for them to sort of make the way towards us. You know what I mean? Because over time, like you you leave the music off and you start asking questions and stuff like that. Just give it a few minutes. And as long as you are really genuinely, sincerely interested in them, you know, with no judgment, they will talk. They definitely will. And I found something that's really successful, and I'm sure there must be research on this, but it's just as like you, I'm a noticer, and my research is actually in the real world with human beings most of the time, is I found often with with older children, if you make direct eye contact with them, that's quite intense for an older child. So I tend, if if I'm having a conversation like that, I tend to look ahead or look at what I'm doing. Now, that sounds um, contradictory to what I've said earlier, but it takes the pressure away from the child. So if you're looking at something else and you're saying, so so how, how how did John get on with his whatever, and you're away from them, they don't feel quite so intensely interrogated and they'll start to respond. And it's the same with very, very little children when you want to make a relationship with them because I visit so many schools. I have to be able to make relationships quickly. Going face on with a very young child that you don't know is quite scary. If you sit alongside them and do this, I wonder if or I wonder what or how did, that creates a response and a bond. So it's about that time thing is also about giving the child time to come in all senses to you, to the place where you are. Pam, I, I would like to touch on this with, with all of your experience in speaking to parents and things like that. Of course, setting up predictable routines is really important. Um, we spoke earlier about how if we were to expect what was going to happen during the day as much as possible, as much as we possibly can. But I wanted to speak a little bit more about Uh, rituals and routines. So things that families can do together during this time. And I I like what you've done before. You've spoken about, you know, younger children in preschool and then primary kids and older kids. Can we sort of give some examples to our parents on what sort of rituals and routines can parents come up with during this pandemic to to sort of have that quality time with their kids? Yes, of course. Um, And I think one of the key things that they're learning for all of us from the pandemic is People are using the same phrase over and over again, which is, when will it end? When will it end? And they're not asking that from a kind of, oh, my goodness me, when will it end? They really want to know there is no boundary to this pandemic. And that Mm -hmm. is what is creating such chaos. So all children, whatever age they are, they need and they actually like, even though they will kick against it, they like routines, they like the rituals, the things that we always do. And what's been interesting, um, speaking to, to parents across the world, from China, through Ecuador, through the United States, 
throughout this this process is the new rituals that have come along. Um, one parent I was talking to, um, new, some New York parents, um, said, oh, now we have, um, we never did this before, but we have egg-tastic Saturdays. And I said, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. He said, oh, well, we always, we, we just always hurry up breakfasts. Now, he said, on Saturdays, we have, you know, everyone has eggs one way or another. Of course, in America, you can do that. Um, Mm-hmm. So we have Eggtastic Saturdays. And one of the children, the older children, had said, when this is all over, can we still have Eggtastic Saturdays? Yeah. But I think one of the, one of the key things is if, if you can eat together, whatever age you are, that's important, even yeah. if it's once a week. And I wouldn't be so foolish to suggest you could do it every day. That's critical mm-hmm. for any age. And it's the reminder that this is safe because rituals and routines make us feel safe even in this chaos this is normal so for your little ones it might be the same bedtime it might be that you have you've booked in your quality time to be with them during the day you always do it maybe you always have fish on if if you're someone that eats fish you always have fish on on wednesday and they find that is safe and for primary and upper secondary and older children again for them something like the eggtastic saturday something that says we always have movie night on Thursday. Even mm-hmm. if you want to watch a movie in your room, that's fine. But we have movie night. We'll bring yep. the popcorn to you. Um, and that's a compromise because a lot of teenagers say, well, I don't want to sit downstairs while you're watching this. Great. Okay, don't. Mm-hmm. But have a movie yourself. This is what we do as a family. And maybe you always mm-hmm. visit a certain person on a certain day. But you must have rules. And those rules are the rules of your house, your home and your family. You know, we don't do this. That's okay, but explain why you don't do it. You know, you mustn't right. do that. Why must I not do that? Most children, most older children, even kick against the rules because they don't know why. But you know, it's mm. built in that we will always test the boundaries. There are many families who've said we're going to have no rules in this family. That will work for a little while, but not for very long because what happens? Each member of the fam- family separately makes their own rules, and then it's chaos. So, well, if everybody gets what they want, then obviously you're going to have chaos. And I'm not saying that there won't be chaos, but there needs to be organized chaos. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But some some parents will use ritual and routine as what I would call a brick bat, you know, something that really punishes mm-hmm. a child. It, punishing is a really, really hard thing to do. There's um, th- There's quite a lot of books around this, I know. But it's if the rules are broken... Find out why they're broken and then respond mm-hmm. accordingly. Um, and that the punishment should match the crime. That's, that's really, really important. I see, you know, a lot of the times when parents are actually grounding kids or giving consequences. Yes, okay, that's a step in the right direction because you know that there are rules and they shouldn't be breaking the rules. But what are the consequences exactly and what are they learning from it? You know, if you're taking away something that they really value, that's really quick. I mean, I'm going to take your video game away, or you're not going on a bike ride anymore. But if you look at uh, our purpose, or if you look at purposeful parenting, now that bike ride is essential for that child to be able to connect with nature. It is essential for that child to be able to let go of steam or to let go of that energy so that it gives that child uh, a much greater chance of success 
later in the day. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that's always um, always has upset me that, that is something that some teachers have done in the past, which is if a child misbehaves in the classroom, and they keep them in and stop them going out for their, their playtime or their break, when actually that's the very child that needs that more than anything. What the child's doing by rebelling against being in the classroom mm. is saying, I actually, I can't, I, you know, I need to move. I can't, this is not working for me. Now, that doesn't mean you, you allow mm. anarchy, but it's the same in parenting. You know, if you're preventing a child from doing something as a punishment, why are you doing the prevention? Is that actually going to help? Or can you do something that is different? Can you approach this mm. in a very different way? And I think that's mm. important. But also, Richard, I think if I said nothing else on this conversation, if you have promised that something will happen if something is done, do it. Never mm. promise. If it's, if it's a promise of a treat, do it. If it's a mm. promise of if you don't be, do this properly, if you don't behave, this will happen. Carry it out. Because children are very good at working out, well, you won't do it anyway, so it doesn't matter. So even if it hurts you mm. in the end and you can't go out either, you do it. Because what children look for in all of us is consistency. And we are all too often failing in being consistent in what we've said, and particularly sometimes between mum and dad. And we've all been in the situation where, you know, mum said no, so I'll go and ask dad. In my case, now I'm mm. much older, it's mum said no, dad said no, I'm going to go and ask granny. And for teenagers, it's particularly critical. They have to trust you. You are an embarrassment, but they have to trust that what you've just said will happen, will happen. And whatever you do as a parent, if you're going to criticize your child, do your very, very, very best to make it criticism with a positive outcome. So you're telling them why. And mm. If you can avoid this, never do it in front of their friends, because what you're doing is not giving them some criticism. You're actually damaging their self-esteem. And that creates a barrier between parents and children. So the word criticism, I always think it's a very hard word, a harsh word to say. Think about, yeah. I'm helping this child to reflect on their behavior. I'm not. Yeah. And how are you going to help and the how? child? If you're going to help the child, then you need to be able to let the child know that this is what is expected. Exactly. So rather than just criticizing, let's discuss what sort of virtues do you think you could have used or did you need to be able to make this better? So having those kinds of conversations is giving our children the tools so that when we aren't there watching over them, the older they grow, they need to be able to know that, yes, I can be patient. I can be flexible. I can be tolerant. I am determined. I don't get distracted. I don't give up because I have been guided towards those kinds of situations before. I have been called out whenever I have demonstrated those um, virtues before. So that is why we need to be really purposeful because going back to what you said, Pam, earlier about the gardener and the carpenter, we need to take on the role of the gardener. Absolutely. We need to be nurturing these children. And whenever we see that the seed needs some water, whenever we see that they, it needs nurturing, whenever we see that there is a teachable moment, then we need to call ourselves as parents to our core purpose and with patience, sit down with our children and provide them with the tools that they need so that later down the line, we aren't the ones that are graying 
and losing hair and still trying to sort out problems that we really should have given them the tools for much earlier in their lives. Absolutely. And I always think, I think parenting, I always think of it that it's a little bit like learning to drive because mm. you, you, you need the basic skills in any, and then you can drive any vehicle in the world, give or take a bit of yeah. um, patience to, to learn it. But what you're doing is giving your child the basic tools to drive this human body out there into society. And no one knows how far we will go. No one knows where children will go, what mm. will happen in society. And I remember some years ago hearing a parent who had sadly lost his daughter to um, to substance abuse. And it was terribly sad. But he'd made it his, his mission to go out and talk to parents about how to manage particularly teenagers. And the parents said to him, so what should we do? What should we do? And he said, the only thing I can say to you is, it, he said, I'm a sailor. I love sailing. He said, I, when I get ready to take my boat out to sea, I do everything I can to make sure that boat is going to be seaworthy. So I, I'm not no sailor, so I can't repeat what he said. But basically, it's make sure you've got the sails, you know, that it's waterproof, that you've got all the safety pieces in, in place. And then you set sail. He said, that's like being a parent. What you do is you have your child is your little boat and you set them with all of the things that you know that they will need from you as your as an experienced adult. And then you set you set them to sail and you hope that everything you've done is enough so that when the stormy waters hit, that little boat will be robust enough to survive. So every mm -hmm. time we are sharp with our children, every time we haven't got time for our children, and we are human too. I lose my temper. I know I do. Not very often, mm -hmm. but I do. Um, every time it happens, just for one second, just, just, just the boat, the boat or the car, am I, what I'm doing now, if I do that every single day to this child and I don't realize I'm doing it, which bit of the boat is not going to be waterworthy, seaworthy? What is it? Yeah. And also, what am I repeating that was done to me? Because I remember a friend of mine said to me um, a little while ago, she said, you know, do you realize, Pam, we're becoming the people that our parents warned us about, <laughs> um, <when> being <laughs> particularly cross about something. But it's true. You know, we, we they become us. And I, I say to children quite often, particularly teenagers, be very careful with adults. They used to be children. So they might know what you're thinking. Mm. Um, and it's funny, mm. but it, you know, it's still, and it, it always gets a wry grin, but it's true. So who are we as people? What did we bring with us? And what are we now yeah. giving straight to our children that we learned? Or are we just, first of all, molding it a little better than perhaps it was given to us, however good your parents were? Um, and I think it was, yeah. was it Liza Minnelli who said, my mother gave me my dreams and my father gave me my ambition. And it's up to me now to mm. put those two together. Absolutely. I think um, it's, it's very, very powerful words, Pam. I would like to invite you uh, for your reflection statements. Um, I'm sitting here just surrounded by, by some of the books that I love. And two things, really. One, I wanted to recommend a book to, to parents, if, if indeed they're interested. It's a book by David Lancey, and it's called Raising Children. Um, and it's mm. looking at various cultures and the way in which they approach parenting. So I'd like to recommend that to you as well as The Gardener and the Carpenter. But I'd also like to just read, if you if you'd indulge me to read it, it's, it's a poem that's always in my head. And even as a very young teacher, someone gave it to me, and I've kept it with me. And it's called, you may know it already, it's called Children Learn What They Live. 
If children live with criticism, they learn to condemn. If children live with hostility, they learn to fight. If children live with fear, they learn to be apprehensive. If children live with pity, they learn to feel sorry for themselves. If children live with ridicule, they learn to feel shy. If children live with jealousy, they learn to feel envy. If children live with shame, they learn to feel guilty. If children live with encouragement, they learn confidence. If children live with tolerance, they learn patience. If children live with praise, they learn appreciation. If children live with acceptance, they learn to love. If children live with approval, they learn to like themselves. If children live with recognition, they learn it's good to have a goal. If children live with sharing, they learn generosity. If children live with honesty, they learn truthfulness. If children live with fairness, they learn justice. If children live with kindness and consideration, they learn respect. If children live with security, they learn to have faith in themselves and in those about them. If children live with love, they learn that the world is a wonderful place in which to live and how to find love in it. And for me, Richard, that sums up everything that the Virtues Programme is saying, that we've said today. Um, and I would like just to offer huge respect to you for what you're doing in terms of, of bringing this to the fore, but also to anyone listening, thanking them, I guess, for bringing these children mm. into the world and for caring enough to listen and to try to find the way with their children in a world that doesn't always help us to do that. Thank you. Thank you so much for your kind words, Pam. You're too kind. And and thank you for being on this podcast. I mean, the first time I asked you, you agreed to do it straight away. Thank you so much. You are so devoted to the purpose of parenting and education. I'm grateful for your enthusiasm and you've always had faith in me. And I thank you for that and for your generosity and service through the time that you have given me and the wisdom with which you've shared so wonderfully with everybody. Thank you, sir. And to all our listeners, yes, and to all our listeners, Pam, um, how can they find you if they're interested to get in touch? If they want to get in touch, um, my email address, now obviously you're welcome to share it, is pammundy at btopenworld.com. And I would love to hear from anyone who'd like to get in touch. Excellent, Pam. And of course, for the family of virtues, Um, and all other related topics you can find me on my personal page on twitter and instagram that's r siddhartha r-s-i-d-h-a-r-t-a or on the family of virtues facebook and instagram pages at family of virtues please subscribe and tune in again next time and may god bless us all thank you so much thank you